0: everybody, welcome to episode 131 of Literary Disco, Bookshelf Revisit, Fall of 2018. Today, as the leaves turn and we settle into wearing sweaters, it's time for a good old fashioned Bookshelf Revisit, chance for Todd, Julia, and I to look back on our shelves and talk about what we're reading, what we've read, maybe what we plan to read, really just a grab bag of book talk. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey! That was
1: very whimsical.
0: Yeah. It it's, was. It's, it's full,
1: you know? It's, it's full. Do you guys wear turtleneck. sweaters out there in <laughs> no. the Cali?
2: I, uh, I have a collection of V-necks that I enjoy.
0: <laughs> I'm wearing a hoodie right now. You know, it's dropped to uh, seventy something, so it's a cold. Yeah, day.
2: here here in Palm Springs, it's 104 today. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> okay. I'm I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt, but yeah, when when it starts to get below like 80 degrees, I start to wear sweaters because I have a bunch of them. And like you, like I've been wearing shorts and a t-shirt for like nine months now. I'm ready to ready to up my outfit game. Get some spiced lattes. Ugh. See some see some Christmas lights. Started thinking about the changing of the leaves. <laughs> All that stuff. Yeah.
0: Or in our case, but mostly you know the palm fronds that just kind of yes. fall. Here's
2: the most important part about fall in the desert. Fall in the desert means that the giant flying roaches that descend on where I live for two months in the summer leave. Why <laughs> would like, you oh.
1: live there?
2: I don't get it. He- it, it's I don't know why they should it's every summer for two months these giant flying roaches show up and then they depart I don't know where they go for the rest of the year
1: everyone's that's got fucking... something
2: what? We, then we also get the Canadian tourists show up for the rest of the year the snowbirds okay. they're a little wow. annoying Yeah. and they're always he, he, here's, a, here's my question for you guys when I'm behind a car from Manitoba and the license plate says friendly Manitoba yeah, I'm fixing to find out if that's true So I always like drive by and I'm like, what the fuck? Flipping them off, doing all kinds of shit to see, are they going to respond friendly? They usually do. Sorry, we're from Canada. We don't know your customs.
1: (laughs) 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 Don't torture poor, innocent Canadians.
2: (laughs) Thanks for giving us Corey Hart. (laughs) 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 I wear my sunglasses at night because of him. But yes, I, I think fall is a time to look back over where you've been and where you're going to. It's a natural thing. Plus, it's the start of the school year.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> All, All right. right, Ryder, what were you going to visit?
0: So my bookshelf revisit is based on um, uh, an, an obsession I had this year with uh, feral children Raised in Northern California. It's a very, very specific okay. subgenre. <laughs> Here we Here go. we go. So there were two books that I read in this vein or there's multiple books I've read in this vein, but the two that I've finished and really enjoyed that I wanted to talk about today um, one is called "Raising Wrecker by a woman named Summer Wood, and the other one is a book that came out last year called "My Absolute Darling" by Gabriel Talent. And um, these these books are very very different, but the one thread is sort of alternative childhoods in the wilds of Northern California, and um, they ha- they take completely different perspectives on the, on on that situation. Uh, Raising Wrecker uh, was written uh, a couple years ago, I think in the early aughts, um, but it's set in the late seventies early eighties, and it's about a commune, essentially. It's not really a formal commune, but it's a group, a collective group of women um, and one guy who live in the woods of Northern California um, after sort of, you know, retreating various life situations and buying a a big uh, piece of property together that they live on communally. They end up with a child who is abandoned by his mother when she is imprisoned in the Haight-Ashbury district um, for drug use and, and crimes. And so she ends up in prison, and they end up with this child that none of them are related to um raising him. It begins the novel at three years old and it sort of becomes this like uh, very optimistic book about um you know alternative families and alternatives to a traditional family structure and setting it in the the seventies and the early eighties becomes this kind of nice uh like I said, optimistic, like uh, almost like a Rousseauian version of childhood, uh, where it's you know you're always on the verge of is this kid gonna be okay? Is he going to be um, in any way sort of permanently damaged by this alternative uh, lifestyle? And uh, it's it's a great read. The characters are wonderful. They're very very believable. It's not, even though the book, like I said, the book is incredibly optimistic. It's not sentimental, and it's not, um, it's not false. Um, they, it, it really presents a nice vision of um, of alternative families and and, and all in all their complexities and uh, variations. And so, I, I really enjoyed that book. On the flip side, Gabriel Talents *My Absolute Darling*, which Is a uh, it won a bunch of awards last year, and it takes place in a contemporary times time period, and it's about a more sort of Unabomber vision of (laughs) raising a child in the woods. It's a a father who is clearly off his rocker to some degree, um, but he you know he comes from a sort of libertarian survivalist, we need to learn how to shoot and hunt and live off the wilderness. And he is raising his daughter, who is now 15 or 16 at the book's beginning, and abusing her regularly, sexually abusing her. And it's a pretty, pretty horrible little book in terms of what it portrays. But it is also magnificently well written. And it makes a great counterpoint to Raising Wrecker in that it's the dark side of this sort of uh, impulse to go into the woods and raise children in the wilds and um and let them be free to you know find their independence. Um it's the really absolute dark side of that coin. Um yeah. So wow, I think I think yeah there. these these two books make an amazing pairing. Um and you know I, I think depending on on if you like dark, action-y sort of hero- heroine stories. You know, Absolute Darling is wonderful. It's sort of like a um, a modern-day revenge Lolita. And it's really good. It's really good. Um, and it's really sensitively written. There are some parts of it that are, feel a little overwritten, the prose itself. And there are some characters, there's these two teenage boy characters that enter the novel um, that become the main character's friends. Uh, they enter about like 150 pages in. I did not believe that these boys existed in reality. They're very, they're very sort of like uh, stand-in genius boys. That I, I just didn't believe a word of their dialogue. But that said, it, it still is an incredible novel. And then if you are, have any interest in a more positive idea of, of, of uh, raising kids in the wilderness, Raising Wrecker is, uh, is a really, really fun read. I bawled my eyes out. Like the last 30 pages of the book, I was like, ugly crying while I was reading it. Um, and I also read both of these, I was reading both of these books while camping through Humboldt County and Mendocino County where they take place and, um, you know, I obviously grew up up there and have such an affection for the the trees and the plants and the water and the ocean up there and man, both these books are so good at capturing the feeling of that particular part of the world which I, I feel still needs a, a good uh, you know, it we don't we don't have a literary tradition as deep and as long as, say, you know, the East Coast or the Deep South or there's there's other parts of the world where you know I think their 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 cultural moment has been really seized on literarily and I, I feel like Northern California is 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 still a burgeoning uh, regionalist tradition and so both these books fit really nicely into that tradition.
2: You know what I wonder though, um, and both those books sound sound awesome is. Like what is it about Northern California specifically that lent itself to um, like the uh, everything from the cult yep. to the alternative raising of children? Like I, I yeah. don't know if this is the same for you, Julia, but I know it was at least for Ryder and myself that I had a bunch of friends that were in either cults or a situation where it was five families living on a plot of land and there was one person they called the captain who was in charge (laughs) of everything. And it wasn't always a situation where everyone was being sexually abused. Sometimes it's just sharing of resources. But then their parents would go out and have like normal jobs as doctors or lawyers or whatever, but they live on a co-op. But then there's always all the cult type stuff too. But it seemed like everyone that I knew in California was one step away from being in a cult. At all times.
1: That, <laughs> uh, I, that is not... Okay. I mean, there's a lot of history here, right? There's... I literally still live in the land of the Puritans. Right. There's no... Like, if you're going to go do something crazy like that, you're going to literally leave and do it. You're going to go to California or go wherever you go. Um, I don't... I have... One or two people I know who have had experiences like that, and they went to California to do them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. And you know, the other thing is that, you know, I see a ton of writing obviously because of my job running the MFA program, but I would say a good 30% of the applications I receive for nonfiction writers coming from California are about their lives and cults.
1: Oh, well, please. Take them all because as a (laughs) genre, (laughs) as like a salacious genre, I Left a Cult has to be like, why aren't there as many books like that as there are on uh, true crime? You know what I mean? Of course, it's a type of true crime in a way. But like I've stood in bookstores reading about people who escape cults more than once because it's a fascinating thing.
2: The interesting thing, though, from my perspective is when I see these books that are being written by aspiring writers, oftentimes I'll say to them something along the lines of, well, look, yeah, you were in a cult and that was a horrible situation, but in order to get this book published, like, it had to be like Hell's Angels and it turns out that your father was your brother or whatever. Like, there's got to be another level because people are so inured to it now. Because even from something like that documentary that we all watched, um, uh, earlier in the year, Wild Wild Country, like the shocking aspects of it, were like, oh, they started to poison the salad bars in these restaurants, and we forget about these things that happen. But Northern California was just so filled with, um, with that world. Ryder, right, were you ever tempted to join a uh, a cult? Uh,
0: no, but you know, I was, uh, I was raised by atheists, much more in the back to nature tradition than a lot of the other people around me i but i did i went to an alternative high school i graduated in a class of 12 people and so the whole school only had about 50 students and you know it was there were there were all variations of exactly what you're describing there were the people who were just like my best friend ocean grew up on a failed commune situation where he was on 50 acres of wilderness and you know Ocean is an incredibly intelligent, like now he's in Mm -hmm. tech and and that kind of industry, but he, he, you know, he used to have calluses so thick on his feet because he was always barefoot and he could run on gravel, like full sprint on gravel His calluses were so thick. And he was just like this kid who showed up every day wearing a tie dye shirt and Nike shorts and no shoes. And he just lived this like wild <laughs> child lifestyle. So there was, you know, and he was amazing. And 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 being raised, you know, his father was an incredible intellectual um, who taught at Stanford. And he, but you know, he he had like a stepmom on the property, his real mom on the property, the father. <laughs> nope. There was like there's always extended his half brother on the other fifty acres next. door. You know, it's one of these kind of situations where you're like, what, what is the whole? What's going on here? And then there were other kids in my in my school. There was like maybe three or four kids that were that were all half uh, siblings because they had all been fathered by the same Indian guru who was running a <laughs> oh my God. cult and then he had died and left this sort of cult falling apart and there were all these children who were the half children that he had fathered. And so these kids were all sort of still in touch with each other and still considered each other family. Um, but, you know, and then there was also the City of God cult, which is... Uh, been exposed as a huge um, child molestation ring that was going on right around my area, so there's a lot of that. Yes, I was always surrounded by yeah. this, uh, you know, this edge, and so that's partly why it's so fascinating to me. But I think to your bigger point, Todd, I mean, to your question, I really think it's it's all coming out of that. Hate Ashbury Summer of Love, mm. you know, San right. Francisco just became a hotbed of the counterculture from 1965 on, or even earlier. You know, you look at the Beats. Once the Beats arrived there in the 50s. San Francisco just became the place to be if you wanted any sort of alternative. If you were willing to, to question, you know, mainstream culture at all, that's where you wound up. Right. And then, of course, San Francisco became a city like everywhere else. So it became flooded with the the drugs, the homelessness, the problems of a city and urban life. And so you had this huge exodus from San Francisco from about 69 onwards of families or couples or individuals just wanting more open space. I mean, it was, it was San Francisco's version of white flight, um, that rather than just becoming the suburbs, which it did in a lot of cases, you have Marin County and like, uh, you know, the East Bay sort of exploding, but you also had deep woods, Northern California, which became the land of pot growers. And so you had all these like hippies becoming, um, also arch conservatives because they would become libertarians. So, you know, while they would have these hundreds of acres where they would be growing all these pot plants, they would end up becoming super anti-government um, in these really aggressive survivalist ways. So it's a fascinating landscape. And I feel like, yes, we're still sort of unpacking the, 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 the shifts, the demographic shifts that occurred during that era. And uh, I'm... You know, I'm as a child of that era. Like when I watched Wild Wild Country, I'm like, why aren't they talking about the kids? Where are kids? Right. What happened to the kids? <laughs> the were raised in this whole time, yeah. and I don't even know if they like if they didn't have children at that cult. They didn't never address it. Oh no, there were tons. Of okay, them. we'll see. They just didn't talk. They just about didn't it. talk about it, which is yeah. frustrating to me because uh, you know, obviously, I'm of the generation below, so I, you know, I I felt direct effects from that, and I'm so curious about more of those stories coming out and that's you know one of my projects as a writer is to focus on that area and i can't wait to to write about this stuff um so that's partly why well, i wrote these books too
1: yeah that's amazing to think about a whole generation of children who were briefly living there or born there or have accepted it as a part of their history you know their childhood history I think Yeah, that's really interesting
2: yeah they're, they're all on mfa programs or in therapy <laughs> right like I, i'm Hopefully not even both. kidding when <laughs> i say like so I've run this MFA program for ten years. I've probably read fifteen cult books.
0: That's incredible.
2: From nonfiction writers in the program. Wow. Over the course wow. of this time, yeah, it's a lot. Um, and you know, sometimes they're just sort of they write that, and then they write the thing that they want to write next. Like they they're working through. Right, they got to
0: get it out of their yeah. system somehow. They yeah, like
2: they got to get that trauma out and and have it be believed, and then they can go use that for something yeah. else. I I've that a lot actually that um, they talk about it and then they they take it out and use it for other things
0: yeah I didn't read um, it but the, the Girls by Emma Klein which was kind of a hit book two mm-hmm. years ago She she's from my home county you know and I wasn't surprised to find that out um, that she, you know and she's that was a fictional account of I think a sort of Manson like cult and I know nothing about right. her as a person but I you know I, I'm not surprised that that's where she went with her first novel uh, c- coming yeah. as she did from the same area that I did
2: well, where I live now, um, there's, there is a, a lot of sort of cult and commune activity popping up um, north of us. So I live in Palm Springs, and then there's this whole area where Joshua Tree and Wonder Valley are, which is this wide open desert, this, you know, essentially... Mushroom in
0: peyote um, land.
2: Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> what it is. And there's no cops, and there's no infrastructure, and there's nothing there, and people are leaving L.A. or San Diego or San Francisco... And they're buying plots of land out there for next to nothing and opening up these communes and then eventually someone gets their throat slit and <laughs> that's how it goes and there's a great actually uh, ivy Pocota wrote a great book wonder valley that came out last year um that that talks about a uh, an ill-fitted commune in the desert out there um, well you guys but, live in
1: a crazy place let me tell you <laughs>
2: yes we do, indeed. we do indeed but i do um, think it has relevance
1: you- sorry i just want to add that I,
0: I do think it has relevancy in an age where once again, I mean, now it seems like in the Trump era, we are questioning social models to an extreme that we mm-hmm. haven't since the 70s or the 60s. And so I, I think that these things are becoming relevant again. These questions of like, well, violence, you know, violence in the streets is at the fore again, Um Polarized government and a polarized culture, where people feel like, wait a minute, the alternative models that have existed, the which still is this hangover of uh, the fl- you know the flower generation, the, that is still hanging over us, and then of course the more extreme flip back that the '80s went through doesn't seem to offer. You know, I mean, the fact that Trump is our president just feels like straight out of 1989 you know it's like what happened right. have we learned nothing or have we progressed at all so these ideas of people wanting to like go extreme again or you know start an alternative society somewhere i think it's a it's I think it's important to consider like is there value in that or how extreme do you go and so these questions right. are are uh, once again relevant
2: actually I don't, I don't i don't think i told the story after it happened um when i was at awp in tampa um couple months ago I was standing in the booth for UC Riverside and I was there with a bunch of other writers and a young woman walked up and we were talking about something I don't remember what and I asked her some pop culture question I was like and she didn't have the answer for it I was like did you grow up in a cult and she's like well not really and I was like oh here we go and she's like you know my family we were in this church and then we separate like five families separated from this church and we moved to our own plot of land in between Illinois and Missouri. And, like, all five of the writers that were in the booth take a step forward. <laughs> and, and I'm like, wow, that's that's crazy. She's like, nah, I mean, yeah, like, I don't speak to my mom anymore. And it was fucked up. Um, but, you know, I remember cool things like how when I was young, um, you know, the, the main priest person, like, he let us feed his piranhas. And I'm like, I, 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 I'm sorry, what? And she's like, "Yeah, you know, like they'd be doing a service, and the kids would be acting up, and so he'd let us feed his piranhas." And I'm like, "You were on a field somewhere between Illinois and Missouri, feeding piranhas?" She's like, "Yeah, yeah. you know, it was one of those places where a guy had piranhas in a tank." And I was like, "No, that's not. A, I don't think that's a thing." And it's I was the American like,
1: "American experience, baby."
2: And so I was like, whatever you're doing right now, you need to stop and you need to write the story about the piranhas. So if you're listening, and I don't remember her name, but she was very nice. If you're listening, ma'am, I hope you're writing the story about your yeah. childhood with the piranhas. It'll
0: come out somewhere, somehow. <laughs>
2: yeah. God. And like, after she left, Rob Roberge was there too, my friend Rob, who's a writer. And he was like, look, either she writes about the piranhas or I write oh, about yeah. the piranhas.
1: <laughs> Good detail.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to talk about, Miss Pistel?
1: I'm ready. Okay, so I've been trying to... Well, first of all, Todd, you do an annual book purge, right? I do. I mean, my situation is out of hand. I do not have an an annual habit of this, and it's just getting fucking crazy. So I... Recently, went through a lot of my books to take some off the lower levels so that Vega won't like pull them out and kill herself on a bookshelf. Um, and it dredged up a lot of books that I've been carrying around for a long time, but because um, I know they're good but I haven't read since I originally read them. And one that I just kind of re unearthed, it's very dark but it's such an amazing book. Um, The Rape of Nanking. Have you guys read this book? Oh, yeah, That's it a came great out in book. 1999, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be surprised if I talked about it in like Our first five episodes on the podcast because I remember. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Well, I'm going back.
0: Yeah, (laughs)
1: Um, it's it's essentially a history of it is the history of World War II in China, but in this specific incident where um, the Japanese overtook this ancient town that had, you know, it was a walled city, so they closed all the doors and had this humongous Holocaust. And the reason that this book is so important and powerful to me is that it was a huge, huge event, and I don't know almost any Americans that even have any clue that it happened. Um, and it's also the source, uh, current, it, not currently, but you know, still of a lot of Chinese-Japanese tension is this one event. Um, you know, it's it's a Holocaust that happened in China. Um, so it's a really good book. It's written by Iris Chang. And it came out in 1999. And I read it when I was in China. Um, And I think I had just Googled, like, books about China. (laughs) Take (laughs) to China. (laughs) I'm going to China. What should I read? And that was, like, at the top of the list. And, I mean, it's, it's just really important to get a global perspective on, you know, Asian history, the relationship between those countries. And also a huge amount of the book is about how we did nothing because we were so focused on our own efforts in Europe. So yeah, that, that's Lever my revisit.
0: Doing nothing. Oof, that's dark, but <laughs> that's, yeah, dark. that's why
1: I didn't want to go first. <laughs> it sounds like an episode
0: of hardcore history that Dan Carlin, yeah. you know, where he would like, yes. he picks up some of those moment, those battles. You were like, how did I not hear about this? And, and he, he sort of frames them, but, but it, this is a fictional account or is it a nonfiction?
1: No, this is nonfiction. Oh, wow. Great. This is nonfiction. So, um, the, I'm just reading from the back now. Um, It tells the story from three perspectives. The Japanese soldiers, the Chinese people in the city, and the group of Westerners who refused to abandon the city, so there was a a small group of Westerners in there, and created a safety zone which saved 300,000 Chinese. Jesus. Um, Mm -hmm. Among the heroes was the German John Rabe, a Nazi, whose diaries Chang discovered and whom she calls the Oscar Schindler of China. Wow! So... It's a really fascinating book, uh, and you guys should all go read it. Everyone should read it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's also, like,
1: a short, for a history book, it's, like, a short, fast, intense read. It's not, like, committing to a giant biography of a single person. It's a singular, gripping account of a single event. So, Mm. big recommend. Awesome. I did not give it away in my book purge.
2: (laughs) Um, so, my revisit is a book that none of you can get.
1: (laughs) Dick. (laughs) Okay. A man of the people.
2: As we were talking about at the top of the show, it's fall. And so, when the calendar turns to fall, what that also means is I have to go back to work. Um, And I'm always, you know, putting together reading lists for my students, trying to find good stuff for them to read that will influence their books. Or they're writing or whatever, and so I was uh, staring at my bookshelf, looking for different things for different different uh, writers. I'm teaching this quarter, and I came across uh, the Bedford Reader, um, which I have been toting around with me since my freshman year of college. It was my freshman comp um, anthology that you know we had to read the essays and the stories in here and write papers cool. on them. Um, Dr. Follett was my English teacher. I remember him um, so clearly. He was tall and had a pencil-thin mustache and was balding and um, was elegant and funny and wore a backpack on both arms. That's how you knew that he was serious. Um, and just a, a super kind um, and interesting man. And he picked some great things for us to read in this class. and. He blew my mind as a um, as a teacher and as a writer. And a few years ago, um, I tracked him down. I sent him an email just to let him know um, how much I appreciated him and, and what a what a huge influence he's been on my reading and writing life. And um, he was very thankful for that. But I've I've had this anthology all this time and. So I was flipping through it, looking to see like what I'd underline yeah. and, and things like that. Um, and, and you know, I was a horrible student, uh, just one of the one of the worst. Ever. Did you
0: write in the margins at all?
2: Not much. Um, but where there's no like where where man versus
0: nature scribbled in the corner. Yeah. Or... Exactly, like,
2: <laughs> plot question mark? Um, but I remember reading some of these things so clearly. One of them. Uh, it was my first introduction to the writer Robertson Davies, who is one of my all-time favorite writers now because of this. Uh, it's an essay called A Few Kind Words for Superstition. It's a very short essay. Um, I don't know this. And Robertson Davies, um, Robertson Davies is sort of famous for making up things that um, he gives so much weight to as, as being true that people think that they're actually true like his book fifth business oh you've talked he gives about a that definition, a yeah yeah he gives the definition of fifth business as this idea in the theater but it's not it's not a thing that's ever existed he just made it up um, so I don't know if what he's saying in this essay is true or not um, but I underlined the different um, kinds of, uh, of superstition so he says in this essay you did not know that superstition takes four forms theologians assure us that it does so I have no idea if this is true First is what they call vain observances, which I've underlined vain observances, <laughs> such as not walking under a ladder and that kind of thing. Uh, and then he goes on. The second form is divination or consulting oracles. Another learned professor I know who would scorn to settle a problem by tossing a coin told me quite seriously that he has resolved a matter related to university affairs by consulting the I Ching. <laughs>
1: okay. And then he goes on. Uh,
2: the third form is idolatry. And universities can show plenty of that if you have ever supervised a large examination room you know how many jujus lucky coins and other bringers of luck are placed on the desk of the candidates modest idolatry but what else can you call it and then he says the fourth form is improper worship of the true god and at this point i'm like there's no way that this is real um a while a while ago i learned that every day for several days a two dollar bill in canada we have two dollar bills regarded by some people as unlucky had been tucked under a candlestick on the altar of a college chapel. Investigation revealed that an engineering student worried about a girl thought that bribery of the deity might help. When I talked with him, he did not think that he was pricing God cheap because he could afford no more. A reasonable argument, but perhaps God was proud that week for the scientific oracle went against him. Um, And so I feel like a lot of this is bullshit, but it's really funny. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And interesting. (laughs) Interesting. just and interesting. Like, interesting to think about
2: yeah. right and so i underlined all of the uh all of the definitions um and then there's another one this is um a comparison and contra- so comparison and contrast so essentially learning how to write compare contrast essays and <laughs> i've underlined uh in the paragraph about the process the first step in comparing and contrasting is to select subjects that will display a clear basis for comparison. I've underlined that.
0: Good, good, <laughs> good. Yeah, keep that in mind. <laughs> in case it wasn't wow, obvious from great the concept, a... <laughs> compare and contrast. The phrase itself kind of says that. But
1: okay. What a peek uh, into your intellectual life, Chad. Yeah,
0: so there's some
2: great stuff in here, though. So um, just some stuff that I'd read for the first time in this class. So for instance... Um, like Hills Like White Elephants is in here. Um, uh, Emily Dickinson, A Narrow Fellow in the Grass. D.H. Lawrence, Snake. Um, a bunch of Thurber. George Orwell's a Hanging is in this. E.B. White's Once More to the Lake is in this, which I think we actually Yeah, we did an episode uh, on. Yeah. Um, so just a lot of just really cool stuff. Calvin Trillin, Joe Didion. Joe Didion in Bed, which is a fantastic piece of work. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff that I read for the first time in this class. Um, There's a great essay by Jeff Greenfield on um, racism and basketball. So are
0: you sure uh, that this book is completely out of print?
2: I'm sure the Bedford Reader still exists, but this is the third edition published in 1989.
1: Right. And of course, no one can get your incredible marginalia. My incredible insight into the (laughs) notes.
0: I still have uh, Uh, my parents house um i still have my adventures in english literature book from high school um which is you know one of these hardcover collections but man like whenever i see it and i pull it down and i flip through it i realize that this is what like this is the first time i read so many authors that i still consider foundational to my understanding Mm -hmm. of the canon um you know a lot of the classic english poets especially like keats and Wordsworth and uh, obviously Shakespeare like you know these were all introduced to me from this one and Beowulf you know because that's where it was like the English literature book that everybody has to read where it starts with Beowulf and goes all the way through. And it was a lot of just selections, but I realized that some of these are the only selections of these authors that I've ever read like, right. since. And so when I go back and I read, I'm like, oh yeah, I should, should probably check out Alexander Pope more because this is the only poem of Alexander Pope's I've ever read. Right. Because it was in this collection. <laughs> and like he's obviously a you know, huge titan of English poetry, but I've actually only read the two that are in this book. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and that's I, I was thinking about that in relation to my memories of... Um, if you're in Lothian, Las Vegas, it was like, did I read this whole book that first time? Right. You know, or was it just in these things? Um, but these anthologies, and I very rarely use anthologies for my own students because they're reading novels or whatever, but, you know, this is the kind of stuff that you get when you're a freshman in college, and all of a sudden, it's no longer state-mandated stuff that you're reading. You're getting right. the actual intellectual curiosity of your professor
1: mm-hmm. given to
2: you, right. and Whatever Doctor Fallot had us read, man, it was good stuff. And I just, um, I've never thrown this away. I mean, it's bedraggled and like it. I, I'm trying to think, like, how did this survive living in this Sigep house
0: for <laughs> for Does three years? Does it smell years, like you know? stale beer?
2: It smells like mm. baby got back. <laughs>
1: Well, I always, oh, man, I was such a dork. I would get those anthologies and we'd have to read, you know, like a quarter or whatever was in them. And then I'd be like, I'm going to read the whole thing oh, and yeah. try right. to do it over the course <laughs> of the semester.
2: The, the funny thing in this one, and I can't believe I didn't do it because it seems like the sort of thing that I would do, is in the back um, there's a thing. To the student, we regularly revise the books we publish in order to make them better. And then there's a survey uh, where they ask you to go through each of the stories and say whether you liked it Liked it a lot. It was okay. Didn't like or didn't read. And um, I didn't mark any of them, but I'll show them to
0: my... So you can take no credit for the fourth edition, is what you're saying.
2: (laughs) No. No No credit for the fourth edition. Um, But anyway, so if you're curious, listeners, at what 18-year-old Todd was reading that turned him into this vile creature of a man may i recommend the bedford reader third edition edited by xj kennedy and dorothy m kennedy for your reading pleasure
0: yeah you know in an age of the internet anthologies have sort of lost their power and their meaning um you know i remember in college i had to buy every one of the norton anthologies for every and so I, i still have all of the English volumes, all of the American volumes, the African American mm-hmm. volume. And that's just from different college classes where it was cheaper and better to just buy the Norton because that right. was what you would always refer to. And it's interesting now I, I don't I don't really pick them down off the shelf like I used to, because in in the late nineties, early aughts, that was the only way you could find certain authors you know certain pieces right now you just do a google search and you can usually find especially anything that's in the public domain you can find the text online so but i'm a huge fan of the anthology man i like the intros i like i like reading you know what the this collection of critics or essays or whoever puts an anthology together like what they thought or how they introduced this author and how they put them into the sort of category of the canon or you know i, I think those are really helpful sort of uh positions to 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 read about and to take before you dive into something that could be otherwise be really intimidating. The problem yeah. with the Norton
2: anthologies, and I've got all of, all of those still too, is they weighed like eight hundred pounds. Yeah. <laughs> so like you'd be trying to read it in bed, it was like, oh, like it's the be worst. your neck. Like and then it. the pages are those like <laughs>
0: super thin, super
2: <laughs> like, thin. Oh, like, oh, yeah. So if you
0: like ever took a highlighter to it, it would like bleed through five It'd of the pages. Bleed, you'd be right. like, Fuck. <laughs>
2: Maybe that's why I didn't make too many marks in the Bedford reader. I didn't want to bleed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I knew I'd made it as a writer by the way when I got into a Norton anthology. I didn't know you got into a like, Norton. That's
1: it.
0: awesome, dude. I'm done.
2: That's huge.
1: That yeah,
2: cute. I'm in a, a Norton anthology of uh, of flash essays they call. it. Oh
1: cool. Cool.
2: Yeah. I was like that's wow. it. Yeah, I, I can retire with the $300 they just gave me.
1: Wow, I finally respect you. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Thanks, Julia. That's so kind. (laughs)
1: Uh, Wow.
0: Alright, I think that's a perfect place to end. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)